This time we're going to shift uh, towards our sermon here this morning. So if you would grab your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're continuing in our study in 1 Peter. So I'd invite you into 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I'll just let you sit since uh, we have three verses to read this morning. A little easier passage uh, just that we will, we will read this morning uh, together. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather here as your people, we look to you. We just want to pause and recognize who we are coming before the God of this universe, the God who has created all things, who has, who has designed and, and created each one of us individually, God who rules and reigns sovereignly over everything. God, how often are our thoughts of you too small? How often our thoughts are too few of you and your greatness and your glory? So it is good that we come together collectively to remind each other of this, to point our, our, our vision towards you, our great God, who has loved us with an everlasting love, who has called us when we were completely lost and hopeless, who gave everything on our behalf that we might be restored into a relationship with you. Let these realities uh, land fresh on us this morning, even as we, as we look into this passage of Scripture. We thank you for your word, that it shapes us, that it continues to, to, to uh, call us to behold you as beautiful and lovely. I thank you for this church, this people that you've gathered. I thank you for the, the church that you have throughout this city that is even gathering this morning. As we are a local group here committed to each other together, we also recognize we're part of something much greater, a gathering of your people throughout this city and even around the world. Weekly and daily, lift our voices and our affections towards you. We just pray that the church throughout Fort Collins would continue to grow and to thrive and that we could be a light in a dark world that to proclaim the glories of Jesus. I think of our brothers and sisters right down the road at Overland Church who are even today celebrating just a year since they were founded. We just pray that, that they would continue to be a faithful place which the gospel can be proclaimed, can be ministered, that people can grow in, in discipleship and training to, to know and love you more. So we pray for Overland Church this morning that you'd continue to allow the unity of your church to be seen in the city, that we would put first and foremost the gospel that has saved us, that unites us. God, I think especially also of CSU campus, as they've just gotten started again with a new semester, I pray for those students who are, who are actively involved in uh, the campus life, that you'd allow them to be a light. Pray for those who are involved with uh, ministries such as FCA Chris Jones and his family who are just getting settled and established in a new uh, season of ministry on CSU's campus, that you would empower them to make uh, your name known 
and to see discipleship spread throughout that campus. Pray that we as a church could, could do what we can to invest in those who are, who are, who are here, who are learning and, and, and being shaped in the season of life. Give us opportunity as a church to minister to the thousands who come here for education. God, I just pray that you would continue to allow this church in this year to be a faithful witness to what you have done in our lives. And that starts first and foremost as we reflect on and recognize what you have done for us individually, what you have done for us collectively. So I pray that you take your word this morning, implant these things deep inside of us. Let us be struck by the glory of our salvation in this simple little text that Peter has written for us. So it's in your name that we pray, it's for your glory that we gather. We look to you and ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. As we get started this morning, let me just ask you guys, what kind of person are you? When you read a book, are you the kind of person that, that actually reads the introduction to the book, or do you just jump to chapter one? When you get a new device or of, of, of some sort, do you actually take the time to, to look at the manual, to read about it, to understand how it works, or do you just start using it and just want to get after it, just, just, want, to, just want to put it to use and you'll figure it out? You know, when you, when, when you have something that you have to assemble, are you the kind of person who actually looks at the instructions or you just start opening packages and trying to figure out how to put it all together? Me, I think, I think in my older, older years here, as I, as, I, as I grow, I think I've, I've learned to appreciate the value of, of the instruction manual, the introduction, uh, the instructions that, that guide us. And a few things have happened that have, that have helped me realize that. Sometimes it's been building stuff for my kids. These simple tools, uh, a couple years ago, just uh, putting together a, one of those little red and yellow cars for, for my youngest son. Ah, this has got to be easy, right? You know, I, I, can, I can handle this. And so uh, I put it together and was working on it. It was pretty straightforward. But it wasn't until I got to the very end that I realized I had forgot one small piece, this one bushing that needed to go in to actually help the wheels turn smoothly. So I ended up having to take the thing all apart to actually put that thing back in. Um, if you've ever gotten something from Ikea, you certainly know the uh, importance of instructions, Right? And uh, the, the, these things help us. They help us understand how things work, how these things are, are put to use. And oftentimes, I think when we come to the Scriptures, we sometimes can have a desire to too quickly get to the practical stuff, right? We want to know, okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, let's get there. Let's, let's get to the stuff that I can, that I can apply. And, and sometimes, it may cause us, in a sense, to kind of skip over the introductory material, there's some good stuff here, as we've looked at First Peter, but we kind of want to get to the, 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 the real stuff that, that gets into the, the real meat of life, right? And so we may start reading First Peter, for instance, and, and, and you know, we, we read about some of these things, and it's great, it's good, it's glorious, but then we want to get to like verse 13, which we'll get to soon. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And we're like, yes, now we're getting into this stuff. I can, I can really kind of sink my teeth into this stuff. I can really apply this stuff. I want to know how I'm supposed to live, what I'm supposed to do. And I want to get to there. And sometimes we can jump too quickly to what we're supposed to do and we miss the foundation that is so important that is being laid in kind of the introductory material, specifically what Peter has been setting forth to us. We are going to get into some very practical implications in this book. We're going to, we're going to look at, at what Peter says about how we should relate to civil government, how, how husbands and wives should relate to each other. Uh, so some very practical implications of, of, of how to live. 
But first and foremost, what Peter does is he sets forth this foundation for us that everything else that he says to us, everything else he calls us to is really built on and rooted in us understanding these things first. And if we skip over too quickly and we miss the foundation that Peter is laying, then I think sometimes we can, we can lose the foundation that really holds all of this stuff together. And he really is just setting forth for us the doctrine and, and beauty and glory of our salvation. This is our third week in this book. We haven't gotten very far, but we'll pick it up here. But, uh, but th- this book is so so practical for us, it's so relevant to us in our current cultural situation. Aaron, as he opened up the book for us and introduced us, he really highlighted this. That as Peter's writing to these new believers, likely, likely first-generation Christians who are kind of scattered in these different areas, but these people are just learning to live by faith, to understand what it, what it means to follow Jesus. And, and in that difficult endeavor, they're also facing some pretty drastic persecution, some, some difficulties. That, are, that, that they're encountering, encountering some persecution and criticism from, from those around them. And we can, we can kind of relate to that a little bit, as Aaron even highlighted, as, as we see Christianity, in a sense, probably being pushed more and more to kind of the margins of our society. We can begin to wrestle with, uh, what does it look like to live in a world in which we don't feel necessarily like we really belong, like we're fully accepted? And this is the same tension that the audience that Peter writes to is feeling. And what we've seen throughout this first section is that Peter's encouragement to these believers just learning to follow Jesus in difficult circumstances is that he, he, he wants to clearly remind his readers that they always have a reason to rejoice no matter how bad it gets out there. And in doing that, Peter has been unfolding for us the depths and the riches of the gospel and the grace that's been poured out to us in Jesus. What has he told us? He's told us that that we have a living hope. We have a secure inheritance. We have been guarded by God's power. We have a future that's characterized by praise, glory, and honor. And the reason that Peter goes into all of these details is because he grounds the Christian's attitude of rejoicing in the recognition and realization of all of these realities being present in their lives. And so even in these few verses that we're looking at today, Peter is continuing to say this. He's continuing to say that against the backdrop of all the trials of your life, all the difficulties you might encounter, says don't forget to stop and to marvel at the glory of your salvation. In verse 10, he opens and says, concerning this salvation, which, which begs the question, what, what is the salvation he's talking about? And if, if you've been here with us working through this, we don't have to look far to, to know what he's talking about. This is the third time that he's referred to salvation in this passage. This is a central focus of the, of, of the text of what Peter is setting forth, calling us to, to consider our salvation and verses 10 to 12 kind of function somewhat of an, as an addendum to what Peter has already said. He could have just moved on, but he almost stops and says, oh, oh, also one more thing. Let me share one more thought with you guys about this salvation that maybe you haven't considered before, because I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss how amazing it is. And so that's what he does here. 
So he calls us to look at this passage. And I think a passage like this just, just calls us to ask some, some big questions about the, the text. The first question that I think we're, we're called to ask is, what is so great about salvation? What's so great about it? Peter's really highlighting it. He's, he's emphasizing it over and over, unpacking it. But, but what's so great about salvation? I mean, first we have to, we have to start with, well, what exactly is the salvation? And I, we can't assume that everybody knows this. So I, so I don't want to assume that we all understand this because the moment that we begin to assume the gospel or assume we all understand salvation, then we may quickly begin to forget it. And so, what is Peter talking about? In verse 9, Peter says that he is referring to the salvation of your souls. Like, the stakes are high. It's, it's, it's huge what he's talking about. The salvation of our souls. But then you kind of ask, well, why do our souls need to be saved? Do we actually see ourselves as those that need this salvation? Because if you don't really think that you need to be saved, then your salvation will never really be all that amazing to you. And I think understanding our need for salvation begins with us understanding what we have been saved from. There are a lot of things out there that people may see as something that they need to be saved from, right? What, 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 do, what, is, what is the biggest danger facing the world, facing humanity today? Some would say that it's generally maybe an unjust social class structure that we need to be saved from. Maybe some might be climate change. Maybe for others, it's corrupt politics. You know, it's, it's uh, medical struggles and disease that we need to be saved from. Maybe personally, you struggle with the, the feeling of, of needing to be saved from your own insecurities, your own self-doubt, your past failures and abuses. And all of these things, I believe the gospel does speak into, it addresses all of these things, but they are not the central danger that the scriptures tell us that we need to be saved from. What we ultimately need to be saved from is the wrath and judgment of God against our sin. This is what 1 Peter 3.18 says. Peter says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And this may not be a popular perspective amidst our current cultural climate, right? But it is absolutely central for us to understand the gospel. That because of our rebellion against a holy God, we stand rightly condemned. And when we understand our condition, it magnifies the glory of our salvation, right? Because God sends Jesus to take on humanity, to give himself in our place as our substitute. And then as he is resurrected from the dead, he secures for us the reality of this eternal hope that he's given us. And as we place our trust in Christ and his work on the cross through faith alone, we receive all of the blessings that Peter has been unpacking. This living hope, this eternal inheritance is secured for us and we are rescued from, ultimately, the wrath of God against sin. You see, ours is a situation in which we cannot 
remove ourselves. We cannot get ourselves out of this. We cannot do it on our own is, is, is what the whole Scripture is really telling us. My uh, youngest son, Brecken, he's uh, you know, almost three, but he's gone through this, this phase. He's kind of coming out of it a little bit, but he had this long phase where he just wanted to do everything on his own. Even things that he wasn't quite ready for. But he just, he wanted to do it on his own. And we're, we're constantly fighting him. You know, he's, he's trying to, you know, eat something messy. And he, you know, he, wa- he wants to do it. He wants to get it. And me and my wife kind of with being control freaks in some sense. We, I'm like, no, let me help you. Let me, let me help you eat that. You, you, you can't do it on your own. But, but what does he do? He fights me and he pulls it back. And then the plate goes all over the floor, right? He wants to do it himself. He, he wants to, even though he's, he's not ready. He can't do it. I think there are so many people that are trying to save themselves, to do it all on their own, saying, I don't need help, I'll be fine, I can fix myself, I'll figure it out, I'm good, I'll, I'll, I'll get it done. To which I often ask, how's that working out for you? How's that going? It usually ends up like a mess like it does with my son. But the gospel tells us that our condition is so desperate that we are hopeless on our own. So we need a salvation that only God can provide. So the reason why our salvation is so amazing is because God did for us what we could never do. And he alone has provided us a way to be restored to a relationship with him. And it tells us that we're, we're, we're also not just saved from something, not just from the wrath of God, but we are saved to something, namely all the blessings and the inheritance that has been laid out for us in the opening of this passage. And Peter, throughout this whole first opening, is, is implying that if we remember and if we marvel at the reality of this taking place, then it will work something incredible in us now. And so the question then becomes to us, if that's true, if marveling at our salvation, if if recognizing the worth and glory of our salvation actually affects us now, how do we do that? How do we begin to, to marvel at our salvation? Because this is what Peter is calling the reader of this letter to, to grasp this amazing gift, to be in awe so, so that our perspective can be changed So that even when we walk through the challenges that we face in this broken world, we will not be undone by them. But how do we begin to do that? And I think what Peter says in these simple verses is that we need a constant, regular reminder of our privileged place in redemptive history. And this is what Peter does by pointing us to two different groups here in this passage that that we should look to to reflect on how we can marvel at our salvation. The first group that he mentions here is the prophets. He says that the prophets searched and inquired. The prophets are those those in the Old Testament, these Old Testament figures who were sent by God to speak to the people. They were sent to warn of coming judgment and call the people to repentance. It was often their messages that were filled with prophecies about God's future deliverance. This was their task. And Peter tells us that that they gave these prophecies when they they prophesied to the people. They didn't always know exactly what it was that they were were prophesying about, how it was going to be fulfilled, right? 
but they wanted to know. And that's Peter's point. They didn't know everything. They didn't understand everything, but they wanted to know. They did understand that, that these prophecies and all were a trajectory that was announcing, you know, this promise of long ago of God's plan to redeem his people, to fix what was broken in the garden. And they, they knew that it was speaking of God's great redemptive work, of how he was going to accomplish this in the world. It had been announced long ago, it had been foreshadowed throughout the history of the Old Testament. And Peter says in this text that the Spirit of Christ through the prophets, speaking of, of, of how God was, was using and working through the prophets to reveal his plan of redemption throughout history, the Spirit of Christ through the prophets told about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would come after it. So we can go back and we can, we can easily look at passages such as Isaiah 53, where it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. We can look at Zechariah 12 that says they, they look on him on whom, they, on whom they have pierced. And we see these trajectories in the Old Testament pointing towards the, the suffering one. And this was even how Jesus read and looked back on the Old Testament. We have this amazing passage in Luke 24 where Jesus, after his resurrection, encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in talking with them, he eventually says to them this, he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, basically a, a Jewish way of describing the whole Old Testament canon, he interpreted them, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, if you look back and read the Old Testament, all of it was pointing towards me. All of it was, was, was speaking of and promising this future redemption that would be found. And Peter says that the prophets, even though they didn't fully understand it, they searched and they asked, they looked at their own messages, the messages that had been before, and they searched to know and to understand how this was going to happen, how it was going to be fulfilled. This is what they longed to see. Let me ask you, what would you really like to see happen in your lifetime? What would you really like to see happen? Um, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this whole self-driving car thing that's coming down, right? They're saying it's coming. Can't, can't wait to see it. I'm, hopeful, I'm super skeptical because I really don't know how it's going to work. But uh, it's going to be terrifying the first, first few times you jump in one of those things, but but, but really, the idea of, of just sitting back and letting your car take you is, is great. I would love to see that actually happen. Maybe for some, you'd love to see us find a cure for cancer. There's this disease that's ravaged so many lives. It's so difficult. We've, we've put so much time and resources into studying it, trying to understand it, trying to, trying to conquer this thing. Wouldn't it be amazing if we actually found the cure? Maybe this year you have certain desires and hopes for, for, for you know, politics to kind of change and, and, and something different to happen. This whole two-party thing or whatever it may be, whatever your perspective may be, maybe politically, like you just desire for the day in which things are a little different. Less corruption, less money that just controls everything. What would be your hope? What, what would you long to see in your lifetime? Peter's saying for the prophets, the things they wanted to see most 
the things they longed for, they searched for, was how these things were going to be fulfilled, how the promise of God's redemption and rescue was going to happen. Because they lived in a world, many of them, in a time when, when God's people had been exiled, where they were lost, they, they didn't see much hope, and then they were called on God to go and tell His people, hey, God is judging you, judgment is coming, but, but, but hope is out there, God is going to do something. There was always this forward-looking aspect to what their prophecies contained. And they wanted to know how that was going to happen. But Peter says they didn't, they understood the trajectory, but they didn't get all the details. Namely, it says, who and when? Who is this one going to be? And even in that, they had some kind of misunderstandings about who, who they were going to be and what they were actually going to accomplish. But then when is this going to happen? Can we wait for it? I, I want to see it. They were longing for it. Even uh, Jesus in Matthew 13, 17 said, For truly I say to you, the prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, they searched diligently for what we casually possess. They searched diligently for what we casually possess. My, uh, my parents, when I was younger, used to uh, always watch this TV show that I thought was so boring. It was on PBS called The Antiques Roadshow. I don't even know if it's still on or not, but anyway, it was kind of a cool show, but uh, really boring the way it was done. Anyway, but, but the thing about that show that, that captivated people was that it was all these people bringing all their old junk and stuff they had found and bringing it to this antique show and uh, having these really smart people who... Uh, just know stuff about everything, apparently, would sit there and tell them the whole history about this item that they, that they brought. And then they would appraise it and set a value on it. And, and throughout the show, oftentimes, every, every episode, it seemed like there was always that one amazing find where somebody just has like this random vase that they pulled out of their grandparents' basement and they, they just brought it like, hey, yeah, I just thought I'd try to figure out about this thing. And then, you know, this really smart museum curator or whatever, whoever they have do it, would be like, you have no idea what you have here. Like, this is some, like, ancient Chinese, you know, from the Ying Dynasty, you know, vase. And this is worth, like, $50,000 or something. And, like, like something that, he, that they just found that was just all meaningless to them had this incredible value by someone who knew to recognize it for what it was worth. And we have history, stories of this throughout history of somebody just having a painting on their wall that... Uh, you know, come to find out it's a Rembrandt or something that was just, it was priceless. And, and sometimes for us, like, does our salvation become that? It, yeah, we, we've lived with it. We've grown up in the church. We, we recognize that, yeah, we, we, Jesus has saved me. Jesus loves me. But, like, do we, do we grasp its worth and value, what it took to accomplish for us? Because the prophets would have given anything to know it, to see it, to realize it, to experience it. In verse 12, Peter gives some insight into the prophets' purpose. He says that over time it was revealed to them that they served not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through the preaching of the gospel. 
In God's plan and purpose, the prophets weren't supposed to see those things, but they were, they were pointing towards that, 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 that time in which the reality would be revealed in the person of Jesus. And then from there, this side of the cross, through the proclamation of the gospel, the historical reality that roots and grounds the Christian faith and the identity and person of Jesus would be revealed as we proclaim the gospel. And it serves the readers of 1 Peter originally, and it continues to serve us today. And God calls us to continue that proclamation of the gospel to serve the next generation. To continue this beautiful message of what God has done. They weren't serving themselves, but you and the things that they proclaimed. Peter then, at the end of verse 12, points to another group as an example of how we should marvel at our salvation. He drops in this short passing statement a line that you could easily pass over without much thought. And he says this. He says, This salvation and the events of how, it's, how it has unfolded are things into which angels long to look. He says, Angels desire to behold the glory of our salvation. Isn't that wild? Like, for mo- many of us, probably like the idea of angels and everything is something we kind of just like, put over here in this other category, we kind of, yeah, it's there, but we, we don't really give it much thought. But uh, if you actually read right, like, like this angelic realm and, and their, their involvement and everything is, is, is littered throughout the Bible, it's, every, it's everywhere. Peter actually highlights it a lot. But Peter brings up the angels, and you're like, why do I care about the angels and what, what they think or anything? But he says the angels long to look into this. And the word that he uses is this idea of, of kind of stooping down or, or looking over something to see into something. This is the image that, that, he, that he portrays is of what, how the angels approach trying to, to see and witness our salvation. Have you ever been in a place, in a setting in which there's just a throng of people trying to see something, trying to get a glimpse of something? Um, a few years ago, I, I loved the game of golf. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go down to Denver to a PGA tournament and, uh, and, and, and be there for the day. And uh, oftentimes, you know, you're a certain distance from the players, you know, watching them play because there's, there's, there's ropes that you have to stay around and there's tons of people. Sometimes you're five people deep trying to watch these guys hit shots. Well, at the very end of the day, on the 18th hole, we were walking down the fairway, kind of in the trees, and all of a sudden this ball flies over our head and lands over in the, in the trees. And so me and a whole bunch of other people run over to it. And we're standing there. And then... Uh, not, not long after that, Rory McIlroy, who if you don't know golf, he's arguably the best golfer in the world, comes, comes walking up to, to his ball. And we're all sitting there, and, and I mean, he's got to hit this crazy shot to try to get out of the trees. He's got to hook it way left, really low, in order to do that. And all of us there, we're, we're wanting to see this. We're wanting to, wanting to see if he can do this, get as close as we can. And so we're all standing there, and everybody's trying to like, you know, push, push their way to see this happen. And there's just this whole bunch of people trying to watch this happen. For me, that's kind of the image that I, that I get when I, when I read what Paul is, Peter is saying here. That the angels are, are, are gathering, are looking, are longing to see and to understand and get a glimpse into this reality. It's not that they can't see it, but it's that they, they, don't, they don't understand it. They long to behold it, to get a glimpse into it. So why do angels care? Why do angels want to see and understand our redemption? I know it's just a short little phrase, but here's my best stab at kind of understanding this. We know that the angelic, in the angelic realm, there were some angels who, who fell in rebellion against God, right? 2 Peter uh, 2 verse 4 
speaks of, of this. It says this, it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. So he, he, Peter even references this, this realm of fallen angels. It appears from what we see in Scripture that there was no plan of redemption for the fallen angels. So this salvation is something that they haven't seen before. Furthermore, we look at a passage like Psalm 8, verse 5, and it describes the creation of the world, but it says, also, who is man that you're mindful of him, God? You've, you've made him a little lower than the angels, and yet crowned him with glory and honor. The angels know their position and, and who we are. And I can imagine the angels are sitting there wondering, why would God go through all of this trouble to save the likes of us? Another aspect is that when we think of angels, we, they, throughout Scripture they are seen as those that, that in a sense lift up the, the glory and majesty and worship God or, 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 or dwell in God's presence. They understand God's glory and His majesty and, and how amazing He is and His worth and value. And their recognition of that in reality, their experience of God magnifies the greatness of what God has done to step down to save us. So maybe Peter is pointing us to say that we don't see the glory of our salvation because we don't dwell closely enough to the presence of God. And I think that if we, if we can, can grow throughout our, our understanding of Scripture, of how God has revealed Himself, if we grow to understand and recognize the holiness and the greatness of God and grow in our understanding of that, while at the same time we can, we can begin to actually understand the depths of our sinfulness, of, of our fallenness, how, how big that gap is between God and us as the angels clearly see, maybe then the cross and the work of God becomes all the much larger. But if we view ourselves as just kind of cute little beings that, oh, you know, God couldn't help himself but, but save us, the cross can appear pretty small if we look at it like that. But the angels see the glory of God. They know who we are. And to them, it is amazing that this is a reality that God has accomplished for us. Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So it calls us just to, just to reflect and take stock of how do you view your salvation? Is it just kind of like a, a free giveaway that you stumbled upon? You know, I, love, I love going to Costco. And the reason I love going to Costco is the reason everybody loves to go to Costco. It's because free samples, right? You get to walk around and eat while you shop in this big store. And if you've got kids, you can, uh, pro tip, you can uh, you know, just act like you're getting your kids some extra food and get, get some more. But uh, Costco's great. But uh, we sometimes perceive our salvation just as, as another Costco sample. It's great, it's good, it's, it's enjoyable, but, uh, you know, it's just a free giveaway that we, that we got. Peter is calling us to consider the value and the worth of what we have been given. 
Do we see it as a gift specially created for us that was sacrificed to, to, to bring to us? It displays the love and the glory and the affection of God to us. That we grow to, grow to understand it, we want to study it, we want to look at it, we want to, we want to understand its worth, its significance, its depths. And I believe that the gospel that has been given to us is, is, is something that we can continue to dig into the riches and the depths of this throughout our lives and never stop being amazed by it. I think it was Jerry Bridges who coined the term that, that we need to be those who preach the gospel to ourselves daily, to look at this, to reflect on it, to recognize it. How do we view our salvation? Do we view it at the same level as the prophets and the angels did? And it leads us kind of back around to a question we almost started with. What does recognizing the glory of our salvation do for us now? As you may be thinking, yeah, it's great, it's glorious, it's, it's good, but life still is really hard, still really difficult. How does, it, how does it affect me presently? And there's this whole thread throughout Scripture that tells us that the assurance of future vindication should empower us with strength, stability, and peace, even amidst present trouble. And this is what this whole opening section is doing for us, that Peter is establishing for us. And it's so crucial to understand this first if we're going to really take to heart the things that he's going to call us to in the later chapters. And I think we can often get frustrated by our circumstances because we think that we deserve better, that we shouldn't be going through this. But if we truly recognize that everything we have been given is a gift, that grace has been lavished upon us, we can have a renewed perspective on life. Now, it doesn't remove the difficulty. Aaron did a great job last week of, of highlighting this, and I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But passages like this can make us feel like, you know, I shouldn't even struggle, shouldn't have discouragement, pain, or doubt, you know, I just have to suck it up, I got to just love God, and uh, Jesus loves me, so we're just, we're all good, right? And sometimes I could feel like it kind of downplays the, the things that we're actually going through, and when you're in the midst of it, the midst of trials and difficulty, those, those things don't seem insignificant. And sometimes a, a passage like this can make us feel that tension. But this book is written to those who are experiencing very real difficulty, very real struggle and suffering. So the answer is not to ignore the struggles, to minimize the trials, to disregard them, but it's only to remind us of our hope while at the same time we bear up under the burdens of life. Because if our only hope is the present removal of the trial, if our ultimate salvation is actually presently the removal of this thing now, then I think we will likely miss what God is seeking to do in our lives through those things and what God's ultimate plan and purpose for the trajectory of our lives is. So this hope, these promises, this recognition of, of what God has done for us should reach back in now, presently, give us a stability and a hope 
and a peace. But we have to strive and labor and work to see the glory of the salvation in order for it to have that impact presently in our lives. And I think, as we close, sometimes we miss the beauty of things because we are so familiar with them, right? Isn't that the classic line? Familiarity breeds contempt. How many of you have ever been driving down I-25 and just forgot to even notice the amazing mountain range to your west? I mean, people come from all over the place to explore these mountains, to see them, and they're in our backyard, and sometimes you can just drive along and they're just there again. They're just always there. We don't even notice it. I was struck by this uh, immensely when this last fall when we took a trip over to the Czech Republic. We were walking around the city of Prague, just this, this glorious city, just amazing architecture, beautiful places. And we were there with Zach and Kara Zegan, and I'd be like, I'd be walking around and be like, Zach, what's that building? It's so cool. It's intricate. I mean, it's it's older than our nation, and it's just this, this great place. I'm like, that's got to be something important. And he'd be like, ah, I think it's apartments. Like, like, it's just, like these buildings and everything are just everywhere. They're just, they're just all over the place. And then we were standing on a bridge looking up over uh, what's uh, this Prague Castle Cathedral that's up there, just, just this amazing structure and feat of architecture. Uh, down below is the Charles Bridge, which is like over 600 years old. And I asked Zach, I said, Zach, you've been here for a number of years. Does like the amazement of this place and where you live, does it ever, has it worn off? And his response was, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes when I'm just going around town, I'm just trying to get from one place to another and it's hectic, and there's just, you know, the public transportation is pretty chaotic, and you got to know where you're going, you got to be on it, so you're just looking down, and you're just looking, and, I, you know, you could just not even recognize it. But he says, when I stop, on a day like this, and I, and I look out, and I, I see it, and I recognize it, he said, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And for us, sometimes, we just, we get so, just looking at all the busyness of life, all the things that we got going on, and everything, and that we just, we just fail to realize the beauty and the glory that has been shown to us in the gospel. In this simple passage that talks about prophets and angels that could easily pass over, points us to these deep realities. Let us be the people who constantly strives and labors to behold Christ in new and fresh ways, to dig into the riches that has been poured out to us, to always behold and be reminded of the glory of the salvation that we have been given, that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn. And in so doing that regularly in our life, maybe God through His Spirit will give us stability and hope to weather the trials, the storms, and the difficulties of the life that we face. Let's pray together to this God that He will help us. Father, I thank You for this passage. This was one I needed today. I needed this week as I reflected on this. Confess how quickly I can grow to just casually recognize the salvation that you've given us. Let us be a people who have fresh eyes to see the glory and the beauty of our salvation. That which the prophets longed for that we currently possess, that we see the full reality of. Let us be a people who, who want to make that known 
As we think of the angels who, who long to understand this because they recognize how great and glorious you are and how low and fallen we are and how much it cost you to save sinners such as us. Let us rejoice in the inheritance that you have provided for us and let us go from here rejoicing because you have accomplished for us what we ultimately needed, the ultimate salvation of our souls. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.